I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. We know their songs, not so much what they were going through, those black women artists who wrote and sang so many anthems of American life. Bessie Smith's Give Me a Pigfoot and Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues, stars beyond category like Ethel Waters singing Shake That Thing in the 20s and then gospel hits like His Eye is on the Sparrow on tour in the 50s with evangelist Billy Graham. Billie Holiday gave the world strange fruit. Nina Simone went deep with Sinner Man. Eartha Kitt was sly and sexy with a French twist on C'est Si Bon. Mahalia Jackson sang Duke Ellington's spiritual Come Sunday. We're talking about a century of black female singers in the churn of gender, race, class, region, technology, and celebrity that drove the culture and the music biz. Daphne Brooks is our archivist and our authority, professor of African-American studies at Yale. Liner Notes for the Revolution is the title of her opinionated compendium of performances that we all sort of know. And there's nothing at all shy, Daphne Brooks, about the argument that runs cover to cover through your book, subtitled The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. In short, black women singers are our truth tellers, you're saying, about love and work, color, caste, God and man and woman. They're absolutely our truth tellers, Chris. I would say they're also our cartographers for how we think about modern life, mm. how we experience modern life. You know, if we consider the fact that Mamie Smith was the first African-American artist to make a blues recording in 1920, which absolutely transformed the recording industry. Crazy Blues? Crazy Blues would be that song. <laughs> I can't sleep tonight. I can't eat a bite. Cause the man I love, he don't treat me right. It was a song that made the blues a black vernacular form, a popular dominant form. And it was the first time that African-Americans had actually been able to break through and record their own music since in the 1910s. Hmm. It changed everything in terms of how we tap into our everyday emotions through popular art. Daffy, you speak about this tradition of truth-telling. It's a big idea, and it has revolutionary implications. What truths come first? And, and what does the revolution look like, feel like to you then and now? Well, I love that you're using the formulation truth-telling, Chris, to the extent to which we understand African-American artists and Black women musicians who innovated so many different key aesthetics that are so familiar to us in popular music today. But those Black women artists we're archiving the history of our American struggle, our American catastrophe, which is that of racial subjugation and gender subjugation through their music. They were kind of our Smithsonian before African-Americans had a Smithsonian of their own in terms of historical memory and how we actually reckon with that blood-soaked history. You write about listeners too and the intimate effects of this music on your mother, for example, <laughs> growing up in Texarkana, Texas, in the Jim Crow 1940s, mm -hmm. waning days of the classic blues women's era. Mm -hmm. And you write about what they learned in record stores. Yes. I mean, I'm so lucky to have 
my mother, all of 95 years old as of this past <laughs> May. I sat and I did an oral history with her in which she shared with me her memories of going to the record store Beasley's. Mm. This was on a main street in Texarkana in which not long before that, there had been a lynching of um, an African-American young man. And she shared with me how she and her girlfriends on the weekends, on Saturdays, had access to this store. So this is still Jim Crow, Texas. Hmm. And I would imagine that some of your listeners, Chris, have fond memories of listening booths, those bygone um, entities within record stores themselves. Right. Which you could sit and share music and share a kind of engagement with the recordings together in these privatized spaces. So this was a kind of privacy that African-Americans have never had in public places. Before we get to the classic blues queens who ruled the early days of recording, I just want to take note of the pianist we're hearing, who is a sort of embodiment of your story. Mary Lou Williams was an activist, a thinker, out of the Pittsburgh land of piano giants, after Earl Father Hines and before the favorite son, Errol Garner. Mary Lou was every inch a pianist, thoughtful, protective, keeper of the art. She inspired a great drawing in your book, of a tree of jazz, one broad leaf for each of hundreds of innovators, bands, styles, ragtime, swing, bebop, all of it rising out of spirituals and at the roots, suffering, yes. so labeled. Black music for Mary Lou Williams was the fruit of the conditions of black life, a bomb for black sorrow. And it had to be very wary, she said, of foreign influences and commercial rock. She said Aretha and James Brown were the real McCoy. But for the rest, watch out. <laughs> yes, this is a woman who really played through all of the changes of jazz, yep. you know? She's a boogie-woogie pianist in her earliest years, but she becomes kind of the mother to bebop. I mean, literally becoming a mentor to you know, all of these figures who would yep. rush over to her house in order to surround her and to learn from her, you know, everyone from Dizzy to Monk. But beyond that, you know, and especially um, during her kind of pivotal conversion to Catholicism, she also takes up a kind of interest in avant-garde, orchestral, symphonic, experimentalist jazz. I was just reading in John Sweat's biography of Miles Davis that Mary Lou Williams showed up to clean his apartment when he was way, way off his, <laughs> his uh, meds, shall we say. She was a keeper. Thank you, Mary Lou Williams. Mm -hmm. Daphne Brooks, I'd love you to speak of Bessie Smith, who has never gone out of style or significance. I'm always reminded when James Baldwin went to Europe in the 50s, he says he took two critical things, his typewriter and two Bessie Smith records. That makes three things, I guess. 
but that was to remind him of his own inner voice. Speak of the Empress of the Blues. She, you know, had a bold and transgressive style that was iconically linked to the ways in which the classic blues women were incredibly candid about their sexual desires and their need for fulfillment. But if we understand her to be the virtuosic genius musician that she was and pay attention to a whole wide range of different kinds of recordings by Bessie Smith, we get a better idea of the extent to which she was an extraordinary actor. Mm. You know, Bessie Smith is kind of merging that period of the early recording industry and the early film industry in something like a seemingly oddball track late in her recording career, Blue Spirit Blues, which is giving us this very colorful, fantastical odyssey that she takes us on into the netherworld. Had a dream last night that I was dead. Had a dream last night that I was dead. Evil spirits all around my bed. The devil came and grabbed my hand. The devil came and grabbed my hand. Took me where. She's collaborating with the stride piano legend James P. Johnson on that recording to sort of draw on vaudevillian cliches and turn them inside out. There's a little bit of horror and terror. I mean, it's a very unusual track. And I like to suggest that my students go to that place to just think about the wonder and the whimsy of blues women's recordings that's not just tied to the important sexual agency in those songs. And then one of my other favorites by Bessie is um, Shipwreck Blues, also from 1931, another kind of epic recording that takes us out of the bedroom, although has all sorts of euphemisms that bring us back to the bedroom, but it's really kind of almost, you know, a, a song in which she She turns into Odysseus going on a kind of large-scale journey that I like to think of as a meditation on blues performance itself, you know, but there's a way that the epic that is the blues, if Mm. we think about the blues as black history, the epic is encapsulated in that performance. Your generation, Daphne, hears a lot more in Bessie Smith than mine did or I did. For you, she's humanizing sexuality for black women, disturbing her listeners profoundly people had said, embracing the exuberance of femaleness. Who was listening to Bessie Smith in the 20s? You know, my book is really trying to lay claim to the fact that there are a lot of ways that we can understand young Black women and girls as having been connected to this music in all sorts of ways. You know, Angela Davis reminds us that the lyrics themselves are the proof that women were listening to this music, right? Because Mm -hmm. the lyrics are testifying to and bearing witness to what their lives were like. And so this is the kind of inverted and counterintuitive way that we have to do research on marginalized peoples. What does it mean, Daphne, that you keep saying in the book, you're writing an intellectual history, not a musical history? This book is an intellectual history of black feminist sound and black women's sounds. 
because in part I wanted to pay attention to the life of the mind of not only the performers who were mm. building this work through intellectual as well as musical and political, socio-cultural practices, but also at the same time as well, the listeners and the people who loved the music so much, and the women in particular who loved the music so much, had ideas about why they valued that music. They had their own intellectual life worlds that were tied to, responding to, inspired by the music. And that was a story that I felt had not been told ever before in any kind of extensive fashion across the modern century, as we call it. Captain, tell your men to get on board. Has your sail just pull into another shore? Coming up, I am imposing on Daphne Brooks to teach me another way to hear some favorite singers. This is Open Source. It seems like happiness is just a thing called Joe. Jazz and pop music at mid-century was full of commanding black female singers from the 30s onward. Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald, Dinah Washington, Betty Carter. I'm asking Daphne Brooks to speak about any and all of them from her liner notes for the revolution. But I'd love you to start, Daphne, with a singer who was also a critic, an activist, a regal beauty, Abby Lincoln. You place her among the revolutionary ones who expanded our notions of what is expressively possible, humanly restorative, in a world that never showed them enough love. Abby Lincoln was extraordinary, and her trajectory is so extraordinary, right? Because she was physically gorgeous and also a prisoner to, in the sexist ways that our patriarchal world works, and the patriarchal culture industry works. She was sort of a prisoner to those looks as she would, you know, if I paraphrase her, describe it herself in some ways in the 1950s when she emerges as a supper club singer, is likened to a quote-unquote black Marilyn Monroe and, and actually appears in, you know, these kinds of novelty films like The Girl Can't Help It, mm. you know, decked out in lavish evening wear, scarlet red gown, but for her coming into consciousness as a black power activist and partnering with her beloved, you know, one-time husband and creative partner, Max Roach. Right, the drummer, Immortal. The Immortal, right, makes that pivot to immersing herself not only in black nationalist politics, but in an emerging black feminism, championing the importance, the humanity, the liberation, the freedom and equality of black women. Many folks are familiar with the extraordinary and legendary 1960 recording by Abby Lincoln, Max Roach, and their ensemble of players, We Insist, which really heralds the coming of the Second Reconstruction and the dawn of the modern civil rights movement. Drive a man, he made a life, but the mammy ain't his wife. Chopping cotton, don't be slow. Better finish out your rope. 
On that recording, Abby Lincoln delivers this blistering scream that many of my colleagues in the field of jazz studies, most famously the great Fred Moden, mm. reminds us is a scream that is archiving the history of screams and that suffering that Mary Lou Williams sees at the root of all black music. Mm. So Abby Lincoln was summoning that history, but amazingly by the mid-1960s, She's also delivering lectures at the New School in 1965. She's on this remarkable panel with a number of other Black feminist writers and thinkers. And she's name-checking everybody from Bessie Smith to Billie Holiday to Mahalia Jackson. And she closes that lecture by delivering the lyrics to Duke Ellington's Come Sunday. Mm -hmm. Now that's um, from his 1943 epic tone parallel Black, Brown, and Beige with Mahalia Jackson. Abby Lincoln, in a way, is kind of digging through the sonic history of Duke Ellington and also Mahalia Jackson in order to kind of end on a prayer. Lordy, So it was a real beautiful way that she immersed herself in the history of Black music and then was able to replay it, reimagine it, and interpolate it into the freedom dreams of a people. You quote her saying that Black women's music was equipment for living, mm -hmm. living with the joy and pain of being Black in racist America. It's a fantastic formulation. It's a formulation tied to the theorist Kenneth Burke, but also one that had become common parlance within jazz circles. We know that Albert Murray, Ralph mm. Ellison's close, close friend Amen. and interlocutor, you know, really believed in this idea of improvisation being a black mode of survival. You play yourself through the changes, right? Mm. You're able to imagine and invent new scenarios in which you can extricate yourself from a present moment struggle. I mean, that is the beauty and magic of jazz. That's why jazz is inherently a black vernacular form. That is the history of that music. That is why that music is black radical music. And that is why folks like Abby and Max really believe that it was a part of and, and central to the revolution of a people's. She's a perfect singer. Which of those singers of the period leap out to your ears today, Daphne. I'm thinking Sarah Vaughan, of course, Ella Fitzgerald in many ways, Eartha Kitt, and Dinah Washington, too. I've got bad news, baby, and you're the first to know. Yes, I've got bad news, baby, and you're the first to know. Well, I discovered this morning that my wig is about to blow 
Dinah Washington really encapsulates the North and the South, the urban and the rural, coolness and control, but also fire and heat. The Jewish feminist historian Rosetta writes from New York City, who becomes the first woman to put together her own indie blues feminist recording label, Rosetta Records. She issues 19 albums of classic blues and jazz women's recordings. She's so central to this history. She loved Dinah Washington. I'm going to quote Rosetta writes, Dinah Washington embodies the sensible, sensitive, sensory, sensational, and sentimental, along with the sensuousness, which is just, you know, a moment of silence for the incredible Rosetta Wrights and, and giving us that kind of beautiful meditation on, on Dinah Washington. She, she was just extraordinary. Can I quote Rosetta Wrights out of your book? She said she just loved hearing Dinah Washington singing love songs. She wrote, in the mother tongue of our imagination. I mean, Rosetta Wrights wrote pure poetry, and she also wrote these um, formidable, fiery, second-wave feminist liner notes to accompany these recordings. And that Mm. is the extraordinary intellectual work that she did for this history She knew it all, and she heard improvisational genius all around her, which we do now. She heard Ella Fitzgerald as a version of Walt Whitman. Yes. American singing at its best, she said. Yes, yes. Speak also of a -a one-of-a-kind Eartha Kitt. (laughs) Just a snippet of uh, I Want to Be Evil. I want to wake up in the morning with that dark brown taste. I want to see some dissipation in my face. I want to be evil. I want to be mad. But more than that, I want to be bad. (laughs) That's Eartha. Eartha Kitt is one of our greatest sonic avant-gardists we've ever been able to behold as not only a vocalist, but a virtuosic dancer, as someone who has immersed herself in European cabaret aesthetics, as well as Harlem Renaissance um, music hall and cabaret aesthetics. She very mindfully was interested in drawing on the legacies of Josephine Baker and others who brought the theatrical into popular music sound. C'est si bon de dans ses yeux Mm, 
Eartha, you know, in that post-war era, is kind of taking all of that history and funneling it into satirical and parodic ways to perform the role of the femme fatale, the black, quote-unquote, Jezebel, or the sexually lascivious black and brown female figure, and then turning it on its head, calling attention to the fact that these are performances, these are performed roles. They can be taken apart and exploded from the inside out. That was Eartha Kitt. We haven't begun to really reckon with the majesty and grandeur of Eartha Kitt. Yeah, she was incredible. She was incredible. And funny. Yeah. But she also poured her heart out in a letter to Lorraine Hansberry, the <laughs> yes. playwright, yeah. as if to say, Sister, you've discovered my life. Yes, it's, it's an incredible story of the intellectual bonding between two celebrities, you know, Lorraine Hansberry, who is just this lightning bolt force who comes onto the scene breaking through on Broadway in 1959, you know, the first African-American woman to have a play produced on Broadway, Raisin in the Sun, and she wins accolade after accolade. There were so many um, African-American activists and entertainers who drank up that show like it was you know, a reminder of mm. who they were, but also how they had not seen themselves represented. Lorraine Hansberry was a queer black feminist and wrote extensively not only about her queer desires, but about her crushes. One of her crushes seemingly was Eartha Kitt. She would mm. write about everything that she loved about Eartha Kitt from her eyes to her legs. So <laughs> you can only imagine how much Lorraine Hansberry had to have swooned getting this letter from Eartha Kitt. Daphne Brooks, it's fascinating. We're talking about singers, but you've also broken through to Rosetta Wright's, Lorraine Hansberry, Ellen Willis of The New Yorker. Mm. The remarkable piece in your book is this collective, it sounds almost like the partisan review, thinking about music, but it also sounds like the rough combat of Twitter, too. And it seems to me you've unearthed a remarkable coterie of penetrating analysts of where we were. You want them back, all of them. That's very moving to me because I hoped to give a sense of a feeling of intellectual intimacies that stretched across multiple communities, multiple time spaces between different women, sometimes overlapping networks of ideas. Mm -hmm. A figure like Phil Garland, who wrote for Ebony Magazine principally as their music critic, she published a groundbreaking book called The Sound of Soul, which was inspired in part by her love of Mary Baraka, Lee Ray Jones's blues people. She's somebody who was in touch with so many different kinds of thinkers and artists from that period. And so she's having epistolary exchanges with Mary Lou Williams, but hmm. she's also keeping track of mammoth recording artists in the 1970s. She's paying attention to Aretha and trying to really document the richness of their performance lives, both on the stage, off the stage, and also in the recording studio. And so that connection between all of these figures, I think is perhaps why you might experience a sort of evocation of a kind of fullness of the lives of these thinkers and the ways that their lives overlapped with one another. I wonder sometimes, Daphne, have you given your century of singers, including those mid-century intellectuals, too modern a ring, too woke, too too comfortable. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think that's an important question. You know, are these people altruistic figures that have nothing but a particular principle, ethical strain to their work? 
No. I mean, you know, we know that Billy sings Taint Nobody's Business, and that is a painful song that opens itself up to the ways that women were subjugated, Hmm. you know, in domestic violence scenarios and also were willing to allow themselves, as the song suggests, to be subjugated. Well, I'd rather my man would hit me than for him to jump up and quit me. Ain't nobody's business if I do. I swear I won't call no copper if I'm beat up by my papa. Ain't nobody's business if I do. Nobody's business. Ain't nobody's business. If I do The contradictions in these artists' repertoires is important, but it doesn't mean that the kind of fugitive resistance politics aren't at work. It doesn't mean that those get canceled. It just means that we have to think ever more carefully about the deep contextual ways that these people were whole beings and had a variety of different emotions and ideas at work. I'm thinking of you finding your forerunners of your own anthropological and historical inquiry in people like Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, How do you protect yourself against just imposing your views on theirs or seeing everything as this time, our very PC standards? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Zora was everything. She was. For those of us who do Zora studies, which is why so many of us love her so much. I mean, some people have argued that from a contemporary standpoint, someone like Zora might fall more into the category of libertarian in terms of thinking about integration politics. That's well known that she opposed Brown v. Board because she, you know, had been raised in the first incorporated black town in this country, Edenville, Florida, and so had ideas about black life and the ways in which it could be privatized along its own standards, right? So that went against the grain of civil rights freedom struggle politics. We can talk about that, but we can also talk about the ways that, you know, her lining rhythms that she was collecting and vocalizing and recording archive the resilience and resistance of black life, not only along the railroads, but the ways in which that music was about a kind of reclamation of the black body Mm. and a kind of cathartic way of expressing one's sorrows, hopes, and dreams. Um, She believed in the intricacies of that music. And so my job as a researcher is to pay attention to what the music is doing and to think about the ways that Zora, the culture worker, you know, had a whole set of ideas that sometimes could complement what the music was doing and sometimes could potentially undercut its socio-political possibility. Coming up, the moderns, let's call them, starting with Aretha Franklin. This is Open Source. 
Let us speak, Daphne Brooks, of the moderns and what they're bringing out of that past, even today with Beyonce at the head of the race. But Aretha Franklin first, please. Riri. <laughs> we got used to hearing people say that might just have been the greatest human voice in the whole wide world mm. ever. Yeah. And I'd love to hear a little bit of Swanee. <laughs> My God. Okay. Aretha singing Swanee is fascinating just because she's appropriating Al Jolson, who well, sang in blackface. Uh, yeah, can I slow this down, Chris? I mean, of course. we're going to talk about appropriating. We're going to talk about Al Jolson being the icon of the central appropriative art in American life, which is blackface. So yep. in a way, we have to understand teenage Aretha Franklin parodically, but also subversively, elegantly, you know, rereading that song mm. through her own vantage point as an African-American vocalist, right? So Swanee is a song that has that painful history of racial power mm. and expropriation in it. Aretha Franklin as a teenager arrives in New York City, signs by way of the legendary John Hammond, originally to Columbia Records, in part because Bessie Smith had been an important figure to her, and Bessie had recorded for Columbia. And John Hammond also was tied to Billie Holiday. He's he's an unbelievably complicated and fascinating figure, as I'm sure you know, Of course. Chris. On the way to hiring Bruce Springsteen. Exactly, right? So there's Aretha. You know, she signs to Columbia, and he has this vision of her being, you know, the next great jazz singer. Dinah Washington was another one of her icons, a friend to her preacher father, and so for much of the 60s, she is recording supper club jazz, you know, mid-century R&B, you know, some really gorgeous tunes like Skylark. Mm. And that had been presumed to be the right path for her since she'd been this legendary child prodigy gospel singer and pianist. We have to remember she was an incredible pianist, but she didn't have a major hit. And we all know how the story goes. It's her connection to Jerry Wexler mm. and signing with Atlantic and going to Muscle Shoals. The reason why I'm kind of lingering, though, on these Columbia years is because people often allied the importance of what it meant for her to immerse herself in such a wide lexicon of popular music sounds um, at mid-century. And so this Aretha is someone who we can hear paying attention to kind of the history of American music. So Swanee was a part of her repertoire. Right. Speak about your favorite, Aretha, as opposed to Swanee. Oh, without a doubt, it's Bridge Over Troubled Water during her 1971 stand at the Fillmore West out in San Francisco. I love the fact that she's at the keyboard. Billy Preston is with her for that performance. It's moving to me, not only because that song itself, the original Simon and Garfunkel, of course, has its ties to the Swan Silvertones and the gospel music that Paul Simon was so enamored with. The fact that Aretha goes to that song 
in that place, the iconic venue of the hippies and of rock and roll culture. She's the first black woman to play that venue. And she brings together this multiracial, multicultural crowd. And it's just an execution of the beloved utopian community that we're all still trying to build in this country. Part of the revolution that you speak about, isn't yes. it? Yes, yeah, no, yeah, it really is. It really is. It's, it's stunning. The story peaks these days, Daphne, in Beyonce, Queen Bee, ultra popular <laughs> songs of both protest and sort of subversive joy. We got to get there, but I didn't mention Nina Simone. Yeah, I mean, I think probably the most important recording of Nina Simone's that everyone would want to pay attention to as we think about the history of this country and black women's centrality to the history of this country is for women. Hmm. A transgenerational narrative about black women's sexual and physical subjugation at the hands of a power class that is bent on using up their bodies in a variety of different ways. My skin is black My Along. My hair is woolly, my back is strong, strong enough to take the pain inflicted again and again. What do they call me? My name is Aunt Sarah. It ends with a powerful kind of sonic rejection of that history when she screams out, my name is Peaches, and one of the most bracing and abrasive endings to mm. a classic song from that era that you could ever find. You're hearing the revolution in her voice. Mm. Who do we have to account for in the grand tradition before we get to Beyonce? I'm thinking a variety of people. Whitney Houston, Rhiannon Giddens, Janelle Monae, Cecile McLaurin Savant. Mm -hmm. What must be said about the tradition between Aretha and Beyonce from A to B? Well, Rhiannon, I would also want to tie to the great contemporary blues folk artist Valerie June. And I've likened them both to being sonic archivist, which is mm. true of the jazz musician Cecile McLaurin-Savant. But I will say 
Brianna Giddens is really uniquely profound in the ways that she actually does archival research that amounts to grist for some of her most potent songs, something like Julie off of her 2017 album Freedom Highway is taken from the materials of slaveholders' letters about the ways in which her captives, who are now formerly captive, are unwilling to stay on the plantation with her. Julie, oh Julie, won't you lie? If they find that trunk of gold by my side Julie, oh Julie, you tell them men That that trunk of gold is yours, my friend Mistress, oh mistress, I won't lie If they find that trunk of gold by your side Mistress, oh mistress, that trunk of gold is what you got with my children you sold. You know, Rihanna Giddens is kind of staging this dialogue between the captor and the now newly free and meditating on the ways in which those power dynamics are still bearing down on their engagement with one another. You know, the captor wants the enslaved to stay. The enslaved is able to finally confront and resist the person who's tormented her. So there are these beautiful bold life worlds that Rihanna Giddens is excavating in the archive and then bringing to life through her songwriting and her virtuosic, classically trained vocalizing. Mm. Cicel McLaurin Salvant is the greatest jazz singer of her generation, I think, mm. with no shade to all of the other enormously gifted artists coming up alongside her. But what sets her apart is, again, her archival abandon, the fact that she has so adventurously seized upon these archival gems that have been forgotten about or long repressed. Everything from the great Burt Williams' Nobody, which is, uh, you know, a song that is speaking back to Black dispossession in this country, speaking back to Jim Crow segregation and the kind of sorrows of Black interior life. Nobody Selma Corin Salvant performs and records Bessie Smith's You've Got to Give Me Some. She performs and records Josephine Baker's Si J'étais en Blanche, translates to If I Were White. 
She records Valeda Snow's You Bring Out the Savage in Me. And she's talked about how these songs that are rooted in primitivist ideas about Blackness and self-loathing, that being able to re-inhabit those songs and pay attention to the humanity of the Black artists who sang those songs is about caring for that archive and telling a fuller history of our life in the archive and outside of it. And inescapably, Daphne, there is the great Beyonce. Yes. The biggest, best in so many dimensions. But for me, there's one critical question. Is she part of the blues tradition that you write about or is she something else entirely? Oh my goodness. She's all of those things and above. Lemonade was the first album of its kind to archive and to bear witness to the long history of captivity in America and Black women's role at the center of both being subjugated in that history, but also being central to the freedom struggle to reject that history. Mm. People think that it is uh, an album that is principally about she and Jay-Z, infidelity, the well-known domestic conflicts between them. It is that for sure, but it is also about the ways in which a larger history shapes our everyday intimacies. And and that history that Beyonce comes back to again and again and again is the worth or the presumed lack of worth of Black women in the fabric of American culture. Mm. You hear it in the songs. Will you play me? Say yourself. The cut, Don't Hurt Yourself. That borrows a sample from Led Zeppelin's cover right, of, right, when, right. of When the Levee Breaks, right? Which we know was first recorded by Memphis Minnie and Kansas Joe McCoy in 1929. You know, Lemonade is visually a tale about Hurricane Katrina. Right, right, right. Dispossession of Black peoples in that moment. So there are these historical parallels that Beyonce is threading through between the dispossession of people through a natural disaster that became man-made disaster. And then you tie that together with the fact that Led Zeppelin was very slow to acknowledge, financially or otherwise, the importance of Memphis Minnie and Kansas Joy McCoy's work (laughs) on that recording, which was about, again, a kind of governmental neglect of Black peoples who suffered at the hands of the 1927 Mississippi flood. You have an archive of Black history right there in Beyonce's music and in her performances that she has brought to the fore in ways that no other artist of her stature and power in our contemporary world has done. In this new millennium, it's extraordinary. 
Daphne, I was going to say, in the basement scenes of Lemonade, Under the Superdome, and The Carnage of Katrina, you close your book on a different note, that there's something of a revolution suggested here. You write, the past is alive. She is saying to the listener, the future is open, when one can believe the country remains unfinished, even unmade. Sounds like Amanda Gorman at the Biden inauguration. It does. It also sounds like the great Grail Marcus. Those are actually his words. And he is, of course, the pioneering and all impactful rock critic. He is a friend and a mentor to me. Hmm. We came from the same city in California, Menlo Park, California. We went to the same schools. We went to the same college to UC Berkeley, albeit different generations, different times. I'm a black woman, Grail Marcus is a white man. We've come together and thinking about the ways that music can be a laboratory mm. to think America and to think America anew. And those words that you read, Chris, are from his deeply influential writings about Bob Dylan's basement tapes. Mm. And I found inspiration in that writing to think about the ways that Lemonade is its own basement tapes, its own kind of meditation on America's past and what America still might be, although we are not there yet. Mm. Daphne Brooks, I got to say, uh, 600 pages into your book, 100 years into your history here, I was just struck. Music talk, songs, singing are the medium for just about everything we really care about, including free expression, mm. about real things, who we are, what it's like to be alive in this world, conditioned in various ways by art, race, gender, age, sex, family, region. But the talk around music seems to me more expressive and more interesting than our talk in general. And I thank you for surfacing so much of it. This has been delightful, Chris. Your show itself is history for every episode. And so to be a part of that, it's a great honor. Daphne Brooks's big book is Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. Our show this week was produced by Adam Coleman and George Hicks. Mary McGrath is the singing voice in our archive. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of independent podcasts making some of the smartest audio you can find. This week, check out Rumble Strip, a show from Erica Heilman that brings you extraordinary conversations with ordinary people in Vermont. In the latest episode, Erica talks with Irfan Sehich, who grew up inside the Bosnian Civil War. He talks about living a war that nobody wanted and the impossible opportunities he found in the United States, starting with a job at Dunkin' Donuts. Find that at rumblestripvermont.com. And check out the whole Hub & Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org. Hub & Spoke. Audio Collective.